This presentation is uh, based on a paper that I'm co-writing, as uh, Julian mentioned, with my colleague here at the Ewe Hero Center, David Burks, who unfortunately cannot be with us today. Uh, but we are uh, co-writing this paper on, as, as the title says, Sleep and Opportunity for Well-Being. Uh, I'll explain in a moment why it's Opportunity for Well-Being. We're talking about not just well-being, sans phrase. Uh, but to begin with, perhaps we can start with a kind of light-hearted thought experiment. So uh, imagine this scenario, which is a bit like what you get, I suppose, when you uh, receive one of these messages in your spam folder that announces to you that you've won an enormous amount at a lottery in which you did not even uh, purchase a ticket, but somehow you still won. Uh, and uh, something, imagine something a bit similar. So a magician comes up, but, but a real magician, not a scam artist. Uh, he, he thinks you deserve a gift, so he offers to give you one extra hour in the day, every day, for the rest of your life. So, uh, basically, to, how to think of this is, uh, you would, uh, like, get, say, eight minutes, eight hours of sleep in seven hours, or something like this. But you, you have a choice in the sense that you can e either choose to uh, get this... Uh, uh, extra hour awake or asleep. So I was thinking maybe we could have a brief show of hands. Who would, if you were given the choice, who would take the extra hour awake? Okay, who would take it asleep? Okay, That's, that leads nicely to my next slide. There is quite a clear majority who would prefer to stay awake for one more hour every day. And yeah, the idea basic idea behind the paper is not that new, so lots of people have at some point or other this thought that comes to them, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just abolish sleep with a pill or whatever intervention? Imagine all the, the extra time we would have available. Am I standing in anyone's way? Uh, sorry, just to make sure I don't hide the screen. I don't know if there's a remote here that I could use in this way. I would not have to... No. Okay, sorry. I might have to interrupt your field of vision occasionally, but... Yeah, so it's a common thought. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could abolish sleep? But then the thought that uh, immediately follows typically is, well, of course it's impossible. It's just a pipe dream, but we all know we need to sleep for long enough, so uh, there's no point thinking about that. And an occasional afterthought, which you hear sometimes, so one example is Jim Horn, who's a famous sleep researcher here in the UK. Uh, in uh, his uh, book Sleep Fairy, he actually opens it with this idea, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had this pill who could abolish sleep? And then he said, well, really, would it be a dream? Wouldn't it be rather a kind of nightmare? Imagine this world where everyone is always on the go. No one ever gets any rest or relaxation. This doesn't sound that good after all. So perhaps it, it isn't bad that we can't abolish sleep. And so what David and I are proposing is a kind of philosophical defense of the idea that, well, not that we should abolish sleep since it's impossible, but that it, it, is some, it does seem desirable to restrict sleep uh, and allow people to uh, sleep for less, provided we can do so in a fully safe manner. And so we're gonna, there's going to be a conceptual part uh, in which we defend this view, and then there are going to be a few practical implications of the view, provided it's, it's correct. So, of course, sleep cannot be done away with, and uh, sleep is something that occupies a significant part of our lives, slightly less than a third of our lives on average. Mm, uh, 
One important part, however, from the perspective of our discussion is that there are big differences, individual differences in sleeping needs and sleeping patterns. Well, the two are not always the same, we're going to talk about that. But some people sleep for much shorter periods every night than others. And so you have two extremes. At one extreme, short sleepers, you might say people who sleep less than seven hours a night on average. Long sleepers, who might define as sleeping uh, more than eight hours per night on average. Most of us are in between these two extremes, kind of average sleepers, seven to eight hours a night. Uh, now, if we look at people at the extreme ends of that spectrum, some famous historical figures might come to your mind when I say short sleeper, you might think of Napoleon, Maggie Thatcher, or Leonardo, who all suppose, supposedly spoke, uh, slept very little and still achieved a huge amount. Now, these examples are always interesting, but it's good nevertheless to take them with a pinch of salt because we don't know exactly how accurate they are. Uh, could just be myths in some cases. Also, it's important to know that sometimes people just mention the amount of time that they spend uh, at night, sleeping at night. So you might have someone who says, well, I just sleep, uh, just sleep five hours per night. But then this person might omit saying, actually, I take a long siesta, like a two-hour siesta early in the afternoon. And all of a sudden, you see that this person is sleeping seven hours a day. He's not really a, a short sleeper after all. And also a very important point is that most people who say that they sleep for small periods are actually chronically sleep deprived. So it's not that they have modest sleeping needs, they just deprive themselves of sleep and often it's uh, very problematic because they can, for instance, pose a hazard as road users. But Still, importantly for our purpose, there does seem to be people who are true short sleepers in the sense that they don't need a lot of sleep. They feel fine, refreshed, uh, they perform well on cognitive tests with just uh, fewer hours of sleep than most of us. These people have been studied. Um, this is one of the best studies that we've been able to find. It was uh, because it was rigorous and it studied uh, a group of people. It wasn't one of the studies that focused on one kind of special individual. So people with a mutation on a particular gene who apparently only need about six hours a night to feel refreshed. They're a rare group of people, so, so about between one and three percent of the population. They seem to have common psychological features. They are very energetic, they are very optimistic, and they have a high tolerance for pain. So they, they have this thing that uh, is sometimes described as a hyperphemic temperament. Seems to be a common trait. Now, long sleepers at the other end of the spectrum. Einstein is a self-described long sleeper. So it's a lifelong pattern. It's not just all of us can occasionally sleep for maybe up to 10 hours if we were sleep deprived and we need to catch up. But we're here we're talking about uh, people who need this on a regular basis. And it's not the same as sleep disorders like hypersomnia where people sleep for very, very long amounts but still don't feel ref refreshed afterwards. They don't get the benefits of sleep. So these people do get these benefits. It's just that they sleep longer than most. Uh, and here again, you could define them in two different ways. You could focus on typical sleep duration, just say, well, this person sleeps 10 hours per night on average, so he's a long sleeper. Or you could have a stricter definition that said, this person actually needs 10 hours to really function well. 
and the two might not always coincide and that's what's interesting from the perspective of uh, our paper. It's, there is at least the possibility that some people might be getting more sleep than they need. But it's good to, to bear in mind these two possible uh, senses. Now, why should a long sleep be problematic, which is one of the points we are making in the paper? Well, imagine these two agents, Mr. Short and Mr. Long. So, uh, as uh, his name indicates, Mr. Short only needs six hours of sleep per night and sleep six hours of sleep, sleep six hours per night. Uh, Mr. Long needs 10 hours per night. So if you do the math, short has 28 extra hours in the week compared to long. And if they both live to 80 years old, short will have about 13 extra years awake than long. Uh, if, if you compare this to severe, I mean, conditions that can severely curtail our lifespan and have a very negative impact on health, such as smoking and severe obesity, well, these things cut off about seven years of waking time, on average. So that's, they, they, they tend to cut off life, total lifespan by 10 years. So in the case of long and short, uh, long is uh, missing out on even more waking time than if you were smoking compared to a non-smoker. Uh, of course, these are kind of extreme examples, but even if you took people who were at the ends of the, what we call the normal spectrum, say, if short uh, slept for uh, seven hours per night and long for only nine hours, you would still, you just need to then uh, divide the figures by two. So 14 extra hours awake, uh, extra hours awake per week for shorts, still uh, six and a half extra awake years throughout the lifespan. That's almost as much as uh, the cases of smoking and severe obesity. So these are very striking figures, I think. And there is more to this, as illustrated by this uh, graph, which depicts the relationship between uh, mortality ratio and the average numbers of hours of sleep that a person is getting. And what you can see is that the lowest level of mortality, this is in a study by Daniel Kripke and colleagues from about 10 years ago, uh, but there are lots of studies that seem to confirm a pattern of this kind. So what you can see is that the lowest mortality level is located here at 6.5 to 7.5 hours per night. When you go either beyond that level or towards a less, uh, fewer hours of sleep, mortality uh, rate increases, which is why it has a U-shaped uh, curve. And another thing, rather unexpected, is that uh, the curve is steeper if you go towards longer sleep than if you go towards shorter sleep. So actually, people who sleep slightly less than optimal have a lesser mortality rate than people who sleep more than this optimal, quote-unquote, level. So this, is a, a, this gives you the data for women, but those for men are very similar. So this is a quite unexpected given the general focus. So when you have people raising concerns about sleep and health, they tend to focus on insufficient sleep. But uh, this graph suggests something that's not talked about so much, which is that long sleep might actually be harmful. Of course, we need to be uh, cautious here because what we've identified is a correlation, and correlation doesn't imply causation. So it's not clear that if long sleepers were to sleep less and try to hit that supposed 
ideal amount of sleep, they would get a lower mortality rate. But this is the, the topic of further study, and, and I think it's very important. Now, moving on to the conceptual part, uh, philosophical accounts of well-being. So the, there was a talk yesterday afternoon on, on well-being, which unfortunately I wasn't able to attend. Uh, this is going to be, I, I apologize in advance if this seems quite general, because I'm going to cover like the main uh, approaches to well-being in contemporary philosophy. I'm not going to get into very specific accounts. And there are specific accounts which might, you might think do not fit very neatly into these broad categories. I mean, I'm happy to discuss that during question time if you want, but I'm going to be kind of general in this part. But as you may uh, know, there is a traditional distinction in this, on this topic between three main approaches to well-being definitions of well-being. Uh, the first kind of approach is hedonism, which says that well-being consists in the total, the overall balance of pleasure over pain. It's quite a familiar account of well-being. Uh, you also have desire-based accounts, also uh, sometimes called cognitive accounts, which identify well-being with the satisfaction of certain desires. And then you can have various versions of this, depending on what kind of desires you take into account. We say it's your actual desire, or there is some kind of more uh, idealized set of desires, I might say rational desires with some information constraints. There are various possible uh, ways you could go here. And the final approach is so-called objective list accounts of well-being. So they say well-being is, they, they give a, a list of objective goods that make your life go better for you. And pleasure is likely to be on that list, but typically these accounts also include other goods such as knowledge, friendship, virtue, and that's why they constitute a, a third approach. And the core claim of the paper is that on the most possible accounts of well-being, needing less sleep will entail a greater opportunity for well-being, at least for most people. We accept that there might be some exceptions, but we believe that this is a statement that will generally be correct. Now, why would we talk about opportunity for well-being rather than just well-being? Uh, well, that's because, of course, you could, even if you had a few extra hours in the day, you could choose to waste them. You could choose to sit in, in a chair and look at the ceiling and get bored throughout your, your extra time. In which case, it's hard to believe that doing this would make your life go better for you. So it would not increase your well-being if you did this. But you could still... the the extra time could still have increased your opportunity for well-being because you had a chance to do things or experience things that would make your life go better for you. It's just that in this example you would not have taken advantage of this opportunity. So let's look at this in more detail. What's, what does hedonism imply about sleep? So clearly on this view the contribution that sleep makes to well-being and opportunities for well-being depends on, on how pleasurable sleep is. And you might think that we will reach different conclusions depending on the kind of hedonism we embrace. So one traditional distinction here is between quantitative and qualitative hedonism. Roughly speaking, quantitative, uh, quantitative hedonism is uh, represented by a view like Bentham's, who focused on intensity and duration of pleasure as 
determining, for determining how pleasurable a particular experience was. And this contrasts with Mill's approach, for instance, who famously said uh, that there were higher and lower pleasures. So not all pleasures are equal, and uh, so it's not just a matter of how intense and how long-lasting a pleasure is, it also depends on the particular nature of the pleasure. Uh, one example would be, among higher pleasures, the pleasures of reading poetry, listening to classical music. On Mill's view would uh, be of a different kind, uh, a superior kind than, say, the pleasure of, I don't know, watching Lindsay Lohan's uh, latest movie. And given its superior place in the hierarchy, this, the, the latter kind of uh, pleasure would actually lead to more pleasurable experiences, irrespective of the duration and intensity of the pleasures in question. Now, when it comes to the, this uh, second qualitative approach, qualitative hedonism, it, it, it seems to us that higher pleasures clearly are more accessible when you're awake. I mean, I don't know what the particular content of your dreams is, but I personally very rarely if ever dream of listening to very beautiful classical music or reading books that teach me great things about the world or reading great poetry. I, my dreams are much less uh, fulfilling than, than this. And I suspect the same is true of many people. So it's hard to use dreams as a substitute for activities such as reading books, listening to music, uh, engaging in uh, philosophical reflection, scientific inquiry, and so forth. So it does seem that on, if you're a qualitative hedonist, you'll, you'll agree with us that sleeping less will increase your opportunity for well-being. You'll have more opportunities to engage in those higher pleasures, even if we agree that sleep can be a source of pleasure. Now, what if you're more of a Benthamite? You could say, well, no, in fact, there's no, there's no reason to have this hierarchy. Uh, you know, pushpin can be as good as poetry in principle, and so the, uh, a dream experience can be just as good as listening to the uh, Missa Solemnis, whatever you think is the highest uh, in the highest, higher pleasure list. So this is a bit more difficult to refute. However, there is some interesting research on the content of dreams. Uh, some studies have found that unpleasant emotions apparently are prevalent. Uh, some estimate them at uh, 68% in our dreams. So this kind of data would suggest that in fact, even if you're a quantitative hedonist, you don't want to have this hierarchy of pleasures, you're still going to have a negative uh, balance of pleasure over pain if you focus on dreams. So, given that you, to the extent that you can have a positive balance while you're awake, let's assume you're, you're not in horrible health, you're not in agony when you wake up, then you would also, even on this, you increase your opportunity for well being by sleeping less. Mm. Though, here I have to acknowledge that there are epistemic limitations. Not only linked to the fact that we forget most of our dreams, so it's hard to exactly determine the, the proportions of uh, a positive versus negative effects in our dreams. And obviously this might vary from individual to individual. But at least it's not clear that the quantitative hedonist has to disagree with us. And the epistemic limitations might actually work in, 
in favor of our points because maybe we forget lots of bad dreams we have. Now, desire-based accounts, we think also support our point to the extent that most people have desires, the satisfaction of which require an active engagement in the world. That is to say, being awake is a precondition of satisfying these desires. So we, this can be brought out by considering Robert Nozick's famous example of the experience machine. So this machine which could give you any experience you like, no matter how pleasurable, Lots of people say, well, I wouldn't want to plug myself into this thing for the rest of my life because, you know, this wouldn't be real. I wouldn't be really doing these things. I want to have a real life, actually go out there in the world and really accomplish things, have real relationships, um, experience things that are not just virtual. And in some ways, we might see sleep as a rudimentary version of the experience machine because of... Uh, Again, unless you're very lucky and you're like, you have mastered the art of lucid dreaming and you can completely control the content of your dreams, which I'm not sure any human being can actually do, uh, it's, sleep is nowhere nearly as good as an experience machine. I suspect your, your experience would confirm that. It's not that we, whatever thing we would most likely, most like to experience in our dreams just happens uh, afterwards. And it, I mean, yes, yeah, some people do enjoy sleeping, we concede these points, but we believe that few people would desire sleep for its own sake, as, as I asked at the beginning, yeah, that maybe some of you would, would disagree with us here, but at least lots of people desire sleep because they like feeling refreshed the following day and they like the fact that they function well, but they don't want to sleep just for sleeping's sake. And Similar remarks seem to apply to objective list accounts. Again, it's uh, the idea that to get those objective goods, you need to be awake, uh, not asleep. Uh, now, there are at least two objections you could raise against our argument. The first one would be, well, they would both focus on uh, the idea of dreams as valuable in some way. So why would dreams be valuable? First, perhaps as a a channel to self-insights. So famously, Freud thought that dreams were the royal road to the unconscious. They were uh, uh, one of the best uh, paths to self-knowledge. You also have other theories about the function of dreams, just threat simulation theory, which says that dreams fulfill an important role. And obviously, if we restrict sleep, we're going to lose out in this respect. Objection number two focuses on the potential uh, positive impact of dreams regarding creativity and problem solving. So some people do report that they can solve problems thanks to their dreams. There are quite a few inventions, there are examples of various inventions and also literary uh, creation. I think uh, Robert Louis Stevenson dreamt part of, uh, was it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? And, uh, Deirdre Barrett, who's a researcher at Harvard, talks about that in her book, The Committee of Sleep. And she also talks about this method called dream incubation. And, and it's a method which supposedly allows you to take deliberate steps to use your dreams as a means to problem solving. So apparently there are steps you can take. I think she mentions uh, thinking about the kind of problem you'd like to dream about. 
maybe putting a picture in front of uh, next to your bed that will make you think about the thing and that would supposedly, uh, according to her, this increases the probability that you will dream of this thing and possibly find a solution to the problem. And so in this article published in 93, she says that a quarter to a third of the subjects she, stud she studied could use this method successfully. Uh, our replies is that first, the theories about the meaning of dreams tend to be very controversial. So famously, psychoanalysis has received, has received a lot of criticism since the later part of the 20th century, largely because it's very difficult to validate the, the conclusions empirically, to uh, check whether really this is the correct interpretation of this dream. It's very hard. Like it's might sound like it makes sense, but then you could have different interpretations that make equal sense. How do you decide between them? Uh, of course, you, you have therapeutic potential. This could be used, uh, therapeutic success could be used as an argument for the correctness of one interpretation, but this is not necessarily a normal argument because you know, so sometimes false interpretations could be helpful psychologically. And uh, when it comes to dream incubation, we've seen that actually the people who were found to successfully use this technique were a minority. So it's not clear that most people can really benefit from it. It's certainly interesting, but it might have its limitations. But perhaps the most important point is that short sleepers also dream. So short sleepers still go through the whole sleep cycle several times uh, a night, and they have REM sleep as well. They dream, so they can also find inspiration and, and self-insight in dreams to the extent that these things are to be found there. So, yes, perhaps long sleepers have an advantage compared to short sleepers there, but at least it's not clear that they do, and we shouldn't just conclude that that's the case just because some people might like to think that it is the case. Now, what about the practical implications of our view, assuming it's correct? So we think that the available evidence suggests a strong reason to explore all the possible avenues to safe sleep restriction. What are these avenues? Well, first of all, you could just have a deliberate routine that involves restricting the time you spend in bed every night. This method is usually described as futile or even dangerous. So. In, in several uh, like academic publications uh, destined to students, such as the Harvard Medical School Guide to a Good Night's Sleep, you get advised against trying this out. So this is a quote from there. Unfortunately, there's no way to train the body to reduce its sleep need. They tell you you're just going to get sleep deprived and your cognitive performance will go down. So don't try that out. And the, the question is, we're talking about, this quote talks about reducing your sleep needs, but it's not clear that sleep restriction requires doing that. Sleep need, you might think, is fixed, but it's not clear that uh, habitual sleep duration is fixed or that it correctly reflects your sleep need. So if sleep restriction involves reducing average or habitual sleep duration, assuming it's beyond your sleep need, then there's no reason to think it shouldn't work and shouldn't be safe. Also, the studies that are used to support this objection to sleep restriction tend to focus on radical forms of sleep restriction where people sleep 
six hours or less every night and then bad things happen, our neural behavioral performance does go down. But this is not the only possible form of sleep restriction. So what about, I don't know, someone who used to sleep nine hours per night who strives to sleep eight hours? It seems like you may yourself know of anecdotal evidence supporting the possibility of doing this. So I've got friends who, after military service, said they changed their sleep habits because they were forced to sleep less. And then they, after that, they found they didn't need to revert to their previous routine. Experts, uh, sleep experts, uh, disagree about the feasibility of this. Uh, there's one interesting article by Van Dongen and colleagues who found, who found that uh, even relatively modest sleep restriction did impair performance. And the worrying thing was that the subjects weren't fully subjectively aware of this uh, decline. So after a couple of days, they felt they had adapted to the new routine. They felt they were functioning quite normally. But when you tested them on reaction tests, for instance, they, you found that they had deteriorated quite significantly. And so this is why Van Dongen and colleagues raised concerns about this kind of method. On the other hand, you have other researchers who say that they didn't find similar uh, consequences. So, for instance, uh, Sean Youngstead and his colleagues have focused on older long sleepers, people who sleep eight hours and a half or, or more per night, and they, they restricted their sleeping time, or no, sorry, their time in bed by, I think, 60 to 90 minutes. And after eight weeks, they had found uh, no detrimental effects in terms of cognitive performance or even other measures, even sleepiness. They had found actually several benefits among most participants. Now, th then there, there are disputes among experts on the right methodology to use here. Uh, so, for instance, some studies allow caffeine among the subjects studied, and some researchers were saying, well, obviously, that makes the study unreliable. You should not allow caffeine. But then the researchers replied, well, these people are already taking caffeine beforehand, so why should we forbid them from taking caffeine? But even if you think that these people had to resort to some dose of some, some uh, degree of stimulants to uh, continue being awake and function well. These results are still encouraging, provided that these amounts are safe to use, obviously. It seems that if you, have, if you could restrict your sleep by, say, an hour and you just had to drink three or four coffees per day to still function well, that might be a workable solution. So at least these are encouraging results, despite the disagreements. Uh, Jim Horn, whom I, I mentioned before, has proposed a distinction between core and optional sleep, which is again a, a disputed concept. But the idea is that you have a certain, the first phases of sleep, which is like five, the first five to six hours, are the most essential ones, according to him. They're necessary for cortical repair. Uh, it's not something you could uh, do without, without damaging your health, and there's no adaptation if you do not get this. And then what you get beyond that, he says, is optional sleep, which at least entails that there's going to be adaptation even if you miss out on that. And uh, it's less essential than core sleep. But it's not clear that it's fully superfluous because even if you cut down optional sleep, say you sleep seven hours instead of eight, 
this might still be reflected in your cognitive performance. You might still get uh, a decrease, but you would adapt in the sense that your performance would uh, stabilize at a lower baseline if you stuck to that uh, routine. But uh, so even if optional sleep is not necessarily superfluous sleep, however, there might still be something such as superfluous sleep. And one reason why we might think this is that people can sleep for longer if they're encouraged to do so. Uh, if you encourage them to just wake up naturally and uh, not worry about when, when they get up. And uh, some researchers uh, draw an analogy with food intake here. So we know that we can eat more than we actually need. So why not think that we can actually sleep more than we really need? And uh, they've also found that uh, if you encourage yourself to sleep for longer and if you start sleeping for longer, there are very slight improvements. Some studies find very slight improvements in cognitive performance and alertness, but the question is, are they really worth it considering all the amount of time you're spending uh, sleeping or in bed rather than awake and active? And it seems that beyond a certain level, these costs are just too high and the benefits too small. And that, at the point at which you think that the benefits become too small and the cost too high, you might say that we have superfluous sleep. And uh, one possible way of uh, safely restricting sleep is napping. Uh, some researchers say that if you say instead of sleeping eight hours, you sleep seven hours and you get a 20 minute nap after lunchtime, that's just as effective. Uh, in overcoming this kind of afternoon dip that many people experience what has a, a lowering of alertness and cognitive performance. So that would be, if, if that's correct, that's definitely a gain from our perspective because that means you spend 40 minutes daily uh, less uh, in bed and you get the same results. So that would definitely be something to consider. One, one problem here is that the workplace environment is not always suitable for napping. So this futuristic thing you see there is called a, uh, an energy pod. And it's uh, Google who has created these things for its employees. Uh, it sounds amazing. I mean, I, I have a colleague who tells me that uh, it's, it's uh, very helpful, though they're sometimes located in public places. That might be one drawback. Maybe they should locate them in a quiet area so that you don't have people walking by when you're having your nap. But at least it seems that the idea is an excellent one, and it's a shame that it's not more broadly followed. Also, if there is, as, as at least there, there is uh, evidence that there might be some forms of safe sleep restriction, now for people to be able to engage in them, it seems very important that they should be able to self-monitor easily. And that's not something that's really the case right now. Now, if you want to assess if you have slept enough or not, you're mostly going to introspect. You're going to ask yourself how sleepy you feel. And as some of the studies uh, I've mentioned show, this is not always reliable because of, especially in cases of adaptation, if you've been uh, cutting down on sleep for a long time, you then uh, adapt to sleep deprivation. You no longer really know what it feels like to be fully awake and then so you might uh, make mistakes about your level of uh, cognitive performance and overestimate it which, with possible very harmful consequences. So 
That's why it would be good if there were some reliable way for everyone to test their objective neurobehavioral uh, performance. That astronauts did uh, have benefit from this. Some of them, the NASA has uh, created this thing, this portable test, psychomotor vigilance test that astronauts could use. Well, we think this should be democratized because it's, it does seem in the public interest. Uh, stimulants. Well, we're all familiar with coffee. Uh, I think more and more people seem familiar with modafinil, at least uh, occasional use to uh, overcome jet lag, for instance. That's uh, still a very controversial area. Uh, some say it's they're safe to use, at least on a kind of sporadic basis. What's clear is that uh, as a long-term strategy to uh, counteract sleep deprivation, they might be harmful. Like if you were to sleep uh, six hours or less and just rely on stimulants to counteract the uh, sleepiness that would result, then you might uh, be putting yourself and others at risk. So it might not be a good idea in that case. More futuristic, we think of technological interventions like Pills. So the researchers who studied these uh, short sleepers were saying that ideally they would like to have something like a pill that would mimic the effects of the gene variation and that could allow people to safely sleep six hours only. Or you could have genetic interventions. Here obviously safety is uh, probably the main issue. Uh, you might also think it's better to have pills than genetic interventions to the extent that they are reversible. So suppose someone felt that longer sleeping time was good for them, at least in some circumstances in terms of creativity. Uh, well, you can imagine like an artist who can sleep for many hours when he, he needs, he or she needs inspiration and then when she needs to actually realize her work, she can take the pill and sleep less and get the job done faster. Of course, since there are personality correlates of this particular gene variation, you might have an issue with if the, taking this pill uh, produced similar changes in personality. If you thought you didn't really like the personality associated with this gene variation, you preferred your current one, then, then that would be an issue. Uh, so, one of our main points also is that more research is needed to determine uh, how many people can engage in sleep restriction and not suffer adverse consequences. Uh, like the research on long sleepers is still very new, so we think there's a strong reason to, to uh, pursue that. Also understand the underpinnings of natural short sleep and the exact relation between long sleep and mortality. Is there just correlation? Is there causation? What's the causation exactly about? Is it that uh, people who sleep for a longer time have poor health to begin with, or is it something else? And the potential benefits of dreams for well-being. And we think that more sleep education is needed to give people the tools to maximize their opportunity for well-being with methods like those I've mentioned, dream incubation, ways of increasing sleep efficiency, it's also important, it seems to us, to counteract some of the uh, misleading advice that's often given, for instance, the popular media about sleep. So you have, for instance, this idea about eight hours, like it's this kind of magic number that everyone ought to be aiming for. 
that doesn't seem adequate in the light of the fact that sleeping needs are individual. So not everyone needs to sleep eight hours. Some people need less. So if and some people actually think that they need to sleep eight hours, but they don't uh, naturally. So then they take sleeping pills, and this seems uh, that these people are just needlessly harming themselves. They are reducing their opportunity for well-being and they're harming their health because they worry needlessly that they need eight hours of sleep. And so people probably need more, so it's not a magic number. Also, you, you sometimes hear that if you've slept long enough, you should just wake up naturally without an alarm clock. If you need an alarm clock, it means you're sleep deprived. That seems highly questionable to us. Or the idea that it should be easy to get up in the morning. Uh, again, it's not clear that this should be the case if you're alert for most of the day. Uh, or may all of the day, say, if you take a nap, there's no, at least there's no evidence for this sort of use. But on the other hand, we think it's important to remember that sleeping needs are individual, partly uh, genetically determined, probably, and so it's important to counter stereotypes, for instance, suggesting that all people who sleep for a long time are just lazy and weak-willed. Uh, that it's just that uh, not everyone is created equal and if our view is correct these people are unlucky and not spoiled so they deserve our empathy and, and tolerance and not our contempt contrary to what's suggested by documents such as this one well I don't know if it's going to work so I Let's see if I find the volume on this thing saying you should sleep six hours only every night and if you currently sleep eight or nine hours just sleep faster <laughs> <laughs> we, so this is irresponsible advice and we don't endorse it